Hi, this is John J.P. Podlasic of Game Dev Advice. I'm a 30-year veteran of the game development industry and have a podcast where I interview artists, animators, programmers, designers, CEOs, and all different types of people that work in the game development industry. Whether you're an aspiring or an experienced game developer, you'll find useful, thought-provoking, and sometimes funny advice on the podcast. So check it out. Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary and narrative-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 21, Pitfall Harry, the Jungle Runner. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees, and over the tar pits and found the jungle treasure. It was really neat. It's strange to think of a time before jumping was a standard video game action, to be expected whenever and wherever you have control over an individual character. A time before you could hop on the enemy's heads, or swing on ropes or move back and forth across a vast level that's many times wider than the screen. But these ideas were actually rare and just beginning to find their way into video game lexicon when David Crane came along and with one single game turned them all into tropes. With just one game that had begun as a simple tech demo of a running man, one game that would go on to define a console generation amid 64 consecutive weeks atop the Billboard bestsellers chart, and a whopping 4 million lifetime sales on a gaming system that itself sold 30 million units. That one game is Pitfall, with an exclamation point, or Jungle Runner, as it was called during development. An Indiana Jones-like adventure distilled into the video game technology of the era. I found the way to the gold! Pitfall by Activision. Quick to the Atari video computer system. And it was made by one guy, David Crane, in 1982. Uh, here, show us. First, climb down the underground passage. Oh, yeah. Leap over scorpions. Oh. Set. <gasps> Swing up the swamp crocodiles. The gold. <laughs> Did I mention the carpets? <laughs> This is the story of Pitfall's creation and its phenomenal legacy, pieced together from myriad sources. Interviews, reviews, history articles, promo videos, book chapters, retrospectives, and a 2011 post-mortem delivered at the Game Developers Conference by none other than David Crane himself. Speaking of David, let's quickly go over a little of his background. He had been making games of one sort or another all his life, but he didn't get a chance to turn his hobby into a profession until 1977, the year after Atari debuted its video computer system, or the 2600 as we know it today, and two years after he completed an electrical engineering degree. He had heard about a job opening at Atari during, of all things, a tennis match. His opponent just happened to be Atari engineer Alan Miller, who asked David to look over the job ad that they were about to file in the newspaper. The next day, David talked his way into the company, whereupon he coded home conversions of popular arcade games, Outlaw, Canyon Bomber, and Slot Machine, as one of several nameless, uncredited programmers working for $20 or $30,000 a year to make titles that he soon learned were earning the company 
tens of millions of dollars in cartridge sales. In a moment that's since become part of video game industry folklore, David and his fellow star programmers then marched up to Atari president Ray Kassar to request fair compensation. The response, as retold by David Crane in his 2011 GDC talk, was rather less than accommodating. They said that we were no no more important to the game than the person on the assembly line who put it together. Because without them, we couldn't sell any games either. So in 1979, a breakaway group of them, David Crane included, formed their own company, Activision, the first third-party console game publisher. And David launched himself into making original games about things. Because all console games at the time were about things. So he made games like Dragster, a drag racing game, and Laser Blast a game where you pilot some flying saucers that are attacking the Earth. But pretty quickly, David grew tired of creating games focused on objects. Games about paddles and planes and tanks and boats and the like. He wanted to make a game centred around a character. A person. Or more specifically, a running man. Because nobody was making games for the Atari 2600 that starred animated characters. He walked his six-foot, eight-inch self, 207 centimetres in the metric parlance, painstakingly back and forth around the Activision office, freezing in different poses to study his own leg and arm positions in the hopes that it would help him understand how those could translate into pixel positions. On a running man, that's no more than 16 pixels wide and 22 high because that was about all the Atari 2600 could handle, with its 128 bytes of RAM. Yes, bytes. Not gigabytes or megabytes or even kilobytes, but bytes. And its 1.19 megahertz processor and 160 pixels display. Then he thought about how he might design a game for this running man to star in. But on that point, David came up empty. For two years he tried again and again to think up a game concept fit for his running man. But the closest he ever got was a cancelled cops and robbers game, where a convict races through a city to escape the police. Then finally, in 1981, he sat down determined to design an adventure for the little dude to run through. He picked up a blank sheet of paper and drew a stick figure standing between a couple of straight lines, in a sort of side view perspective cutaway a man on a path, which he then decided would be a jungle, because the first Indiana Jones film Raiders of the Lost Ark was screening at the time, and it was set mostly in a jungle, so why not riff on that? He drew in some trees to represent a jungle. Then, to give his character some motivation for running, he drew in some treasures to collect, and a bunch of snapping crocodile heads that the running man could either swing over on a vine, like Tarzan, or hop onto with some precise timing when their mouths closed. Plus there were logs to avoid, and an underground chamber that provided a secondary path to follow. To win, you'd have to find and collect all 32 treasures before your time runs out. And boom, after 10 minutes of brainstorming and more than two years of pondering, David had his running man game. Well, sort of. I mean, he still had to actually build it. And that wouldn't be straightforward by any means. In fact, it'd take him an estimated 1,000 hours of programming to complete development. 
Because the important thing to understand about David is he didn't make games in the same way as most other programmers of the time, or now for that matter, where they'd go through a process of devising variants and refinements to establish game mechanics and interaction models and coding techniques. It wasn't that they were lazy and he wasn't or anything like that. There was a solid practical reason for this approach, as David explained in that GDC post-mortem. If you set out to design a game for this hardware, you almost had to think in hardware rather than software. You had to be thinking, I have to send this value to that register to do this. Which is a very abstract and unintuitive way of working. But that's how the Atari 2600 worked. To get it to put stuff on the screen or to make sound or accept player inputs or do anything at all, you had to send it different kinds of numeric values that had predefined functions, like this number gives this background. And so it's because of this unintuitive, super difficult process, as well as the inherent weakness of the system's capabilities and the short development deadlines at Atari, that by this time, which is a few years into the 2600's life, most games relied upon the tried and true techniques on reused code and reused ideas with a little something new and different, added or improved each time to make it fresh. You could think of it as innovation through refinement. But David's engineering background drove him down the harder path of innovation through invention. This is a man whose resume for the Atari job had been typed up on a computer he designed and built himself. He, like the character he was here creating, was into discovery. Expeditions into the unknown, where his excitement comes not from improving upon what came before, but rather accomplishing something new. Something that nobody else had done before. And if he wasn't inventing it whole hulk, he'd settled for an impossible blend of existing programming tricks, combined inventively to have the same effect. To create something original, to show he was master of the machine. Like in the racing game that he made right before Pitfall, Grand Prix, which split cars into several sprite graphics glued together as a technical workaround to allow the racetracks to be wider than the screen, unlike in previous Atari 2600 racing games, and shown by scrolling the display. But that, in turn, meant that computer-controlled cars could disappear off-screen if they got too far ahead or behind, first just partly and then wholly vanishing from view. Cropping off the edge of the sprite would be too computationally expensive to work. And the hardware also couldn't pull off modern techniques like double buffering, which would make this a trivial problem by letting you flip back and forth between on-screen and off-screen images. Plus he had to circumvent a built-in sprite wraparound hardware feature, which made the sprites appear immediately on the right side of screen once they'd moved off the left edge, or vice versa. So in essence, David had to be smarter about it. And his trick was to break these non-player cars into multiple separate sprites, which then allowed him to simply draw to screen only the portion of the car that he needed. As with Grand Prix and Dragster and all his other prior games, David had ideas for Pitfall that required he reinvent the wheel, so to speak. For context, the Atari 2600 was a console designed for simple single-screen games where you hit a ball with two paddles, or drive around a small playfield shooting missiles at your opponent. Pong games and tank games. 
As such, it allowed for five movable objects, consisting of two player objects, two missile objects, and a ball object. Though in practice they weren't necessarily used as their type name suggests. And early Atari programmers discovered that they could indeed be used cleverly for different purposes on successive scan lines or cloned for multiple appearances side by side. Like what David did in Pitfall, where the vines were composed of a missile object, repeated multiple times as you travel down. And the players remaining lives are displayed atop the screen, also using missile objects. And meanwhile, the two player objects were used not just to put Harry on the screen, but also for tree branches and for the three crocodile heads, which are one player duplicated. But back on the hardware capabilities, your background graphics would be composed of 20 blocks, four pixels each, either repeated or reflected on the second half of the screen. So developers were pushed by design into making simple two-player combat sport or racing games with basic and totally symmetrical level geometry. But David's design of Pitfall's game world called for 255 interconnected screens, arranged in a circular path, each with a corridor on the surface level and another one in a cavern underground that let you take shortcuts if you were skilled enough to jump over the scorpion and providing there wasn't a wall there to block you. And the game would sort of page through these screens as you moved off their left or right edges, almost like a digitised and wholly graphical choose-your-own-adventure book. Pitfall wasn't the first game to have such a world. Warren Robinette's Adventure and John Dunn's Superman, which leveraged Adventure's prototype code, lay joint claim to that achievement. But Pitfall was by far the biggest. If I counted correctly, Superman had 26 and Adventure 30 screens including that famous easter egg room. And most other multi-screen games of the time were even smaller than this. So 255 was a massive jump. And yet despite this, Pitfall had to fit into the same 4 kilobyte ROM cartridge as Adventure. 4 kilobytes, not just for the screens, but also the game's several sprites and the corresponding frames of animation plus colour values for each line of the screen because it was an unusually colourful world by Atari 2600 standards. And code for a countdown timer because players would get just 20 minutes per playthrough. And the Activision logo that sits at the bottom of every screen. And the code for generating the game's sound effects and for processing player input and so on and so on. Even something as simple as the player character, Pitfall Harry, would require unusually complex code. Again, here's a short clip from David's GDC talk. I can change the player color, but if I want to make a character like Pitfall Harry that's standing there on that graph paper, not only do I have to change his graphics on every single scanline of the television, I have to change his color, which takes more time, and you only have so many processing cycles going on before the beam comes around again. We'll come back to finish the story right after this short break. The life and times of video games takes a huge amount of work to make, and I do absolutely all of the editing, writing, and production on my own, which I enjoy, but I won't be able to do it much longer, especially if I'm aiming to make episodes that have interviews and game audio and everything mixed in, unless I can earn enough money to cover the dozens of hours I put into it. So if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate a donation. Either a one-off payment by paypal.me slash mossrc 
or a monthly contribution, which can now be done by subscribing to my premium feed on Breaker via lifeandtimes.games slash Breaker or through Patreon via lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. I'll have links to these in the show notes or you can go to lifeandtimes.games slash donate and you'll get all the info again. What's up, everybody? My name's Garrett Morlang. Hey, everybody. I'm JJ Pruda. And we are the Super Gamer Boys. And we are the preeminent video game podcast in the entire world. We are trying to take over the world with all of our comedy, with news and whatnot. And we are so excited to be members of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Yes, we bring you uh, all the news you want to know every week. We bring you movie reviews, game reviews, uh, and all the goofs you want to hear. So come check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast service. All right, now let's get back to the show. When we left off, David Crane had just finished designing his game about a running man in a jungle. And next he had to figure out a way to squeeze its 255 interconnected screens and everything else, into a paltry 4 kilobyte ROM cartridge. Pitfall was so detailed and expansive that you could liken the programming challenge set before David to trying to cram the entirety of Grand Theft Auto V's 45 gigabytes base game into a single CD, like 45 gigabytes down to 640 megabytes. It's a monumental challenge. And yet he did it thanks to some clever mathematics and code. Many Atari 2600 games used a mathematical device known as a polynomial counter to introduce an element of randomness to the game. So that, for instance, starting conditions in Haunted House would vary from one playthrough to the next. So polynomial counters are simple algorithms or sets of rules that produce pseudo-random number sequences from a given seed value. So instead of counting 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on, it might count 0, 7, 12, 3, 5, or something like that. But note that word before, pseudo-random, which means the sequence is not truly randomized. If we assume the algorithm itself is always defined the same way in the game, and this seed value is set in advance, then that means the sequence will always be the same. So in the example I just gave, if the seed is zero, then the next number will always be a seven. That meant that David could define his world mathematically, such that even though each screen would be regenerated every time the player entered it, that screen would appear the same every time. And he could also design his polynomial counter to be reversible, to run in either direction, to count up or count down. So when Pitfall Harry runs off to the right of the screen, it'll count up, and when he runs off to the left, it'll count back down. In Pitfall, the screens were defined based on the binary data in the number. So having 255 total screens was not a random choice by David. The number 255 is exactly eight binary digits long, eight bits. The Atari 2600 stored its numbers in eight bits. 8 bits that can either be 1 or 0, and that translate into a number between 0 and 255. So in internal memory, the number 0 would actually be 8 zeros long, while a 1 would be 7 zeros and then a 1. In his mathematical definition, David Crane split his pitfall screens into four components using those 8 bits. 
The first three bits defined the type of objects on the ground, like treasure or logs or whatever, with seven possible outcomes. Then bits three to five defined the ground terrain. Does it have holes, crocodiles, ladders, a tar pit, a pond, and so on? Then bits six and seven corresponded to the different possible background tree patterns. And bit seven also defined whether or not there'd be a wall in the underground section of the screen. This solution was so elegant that the entire 255 screen jungle fit in less than 50 bytes, or just a touch over 1% of the game ROM, which left lots of room for storing all those other things that needed to be squeezed into the measly 4 kilobytes. Like the detailed sprites and animations who are running and jumping and swinging and climbing Man Harry. As well as the crocodiles, scorpions, logs, rattlesnakes, fires and all the different kinds of treasure. None of those sprites were chosen arbitrarily either. The Atari 2600's weak graphics capabilities meant that most of the things that might have been cool as enemies or objects would not have been even remotely recognisable. Like how in Adventure, the fearsome dragons were perceived as, and indeed called, ducks by the majority of players, because they, they looked exactly like ducks. So David confined himself to only the things that were recognisable when he drew them on a piece of graph paper. And as is so often the case with great games, and especially with games that changed the industry, it's the little things that made Pitfall special. Like the extra code it had to give you a window of three sixtieths of a second after you hit the jump button, to push the joystick sideways, to make Harry jump to the left or right. Just this extra, extra little fraction of a second to help you make the jump from one crocodile head to the next without dying all the time. Because that was a way to be more fair to the player without making things unrealistic. Here's another little clip from David's GDC talk. I really hated the idea of being able to jump and then move while your feet are off the ground. I'm just a stickler. I like physics. Pitfall's most oft-neglected innovation may well be the one that it shared with influential 1981 in television strategy game Utopia. It was a mass-market game ideally suited to longer play sessions at home, in the living room. Up until this point, most home console games were essentially arcade experiences transplanted to the home even when they weren't actually arcade conversions. Now, of course, as always with history, nothing is absolute. Many home computer games, such as Chris Crawford's Legionnaire and Sublogic's Flight Simulator, had offered longer-form experiences before Pitfall. But computers weren't yet mainstream at this point. And here, with these games Pitfall and Utopia, we had a sort of point of inflection, where the dominant mode of play shifted where games began to be judged on their length, on their longevity and replayability, because now players began to expect their sessions with a game would last half an hour, or an hour, or longer. Many of the finer points of Pitfall's innovation and design legacy may have been lost on players and critics of the time, who lacked both the distance that hindsight gives us, as well as the language with which to properly describe Pitfall's achievements since games magazines had only just begun to emerge. But even still, people knew a landmark game when they saw one. At its peak, Pitfall received 14,000 fan letters in a week, which necessitated a staff of several people at Activision, working full-time just to open and respond to them all. 
Professional reviewers fell in love with the game too. Arcade Express called Pitfall the best adventure game yet produced for Atari's home console, with praise for its graphics, animation, and extremely varied play action. While Blip Magazine's debut issue called the game a heck of a lot of fun, though the review writer struggled to actually describe why, other than to spell out the game's mechanics, and to break down all the ways in which it's similar and different to 1981 arcade hit Donkey Kong, which in truth had used the same core verbs as Pitfall, but in a very different way, in its sending of the hero Jumpman, or Mario as we know him today, on a journey up some scaffolding to save the damsel in distress from an overly possessive ape. Creative Computing gave Pitfall a quick two-paragraph treatment too, with careful note of its tricky vine-swinging mechanic, its startling graphics, and the fact that it stood out above everything else at the 1982 Consumer Electronics Show. As always happens when something successful comes along, Pitfall clones and derivatives quickly flooded the market. Fellow Atari splinter group iMagic was first, with tropical trouble on the Intellivision, while Atari itself wasn't far behind with the tedious Jungle Hunt, which paired alliterative names like Safari Sam and Reptile River with cliches like damsels in distress and vicious cannibal tribes. These so-called run, jump and climb games were everywhere, thanks largely to Pitfall and Donkey Kong. Here's David Crane reflecting on the immediate popularity of the new genre as part of an interview on G4TV's X-Play. It just turned out to happen to be such a fun thing to do that before it was all done, there were at least 600 games of that genre before the end of the 2600 days. Which seems like a reasonable estimate to me, if you include all the other console systems. Given that the Atari 2600 wasn't discontinued until January 1992, and platformers, as they came to be known, were a dime a dozen on Nintendo and Sega's early consoles. The folks at Activision weren't afraid to cash in on Pitfall's success either. They sent out merit patches to people who attained the maximum possible score and sold a large variety of merchandise. And they got the game ported over to all the other consoles and computers of the time. In a savvy bit of cross-media marketing, they also got a cartoon made as, as one of the regular segments on the Saturday Supercade TV show, where Pitfall Harry and the new characters Rhonda, his niece, and Quickclaw, their cowardly pet mountain lion, went on adventures. Pitfall here? Yes, Admiral. What's so urgent? A ship containing a collection of rare government coins was mysteriously sunk off the Coral Islands. Someone is after the coins. Yes, your old enemy, the shark. Then two years after Pitfall's original release, in 1984, they had a sequel straight from the mind of David Crane, who specified a custom chip design to add to the cartridge ROM because he felt he'd finally hit the limit of what an Atari 2600 could do. But with that custom chip, Pitfall 2 lost caverns piled on even more new innovations like a four-channel musical soundtrack, multiple subterranean levels of depth and vertical scrolling, swimming quests that tied the animated series into the game, and what amounted to an automatic respawn function. So instead of having multiple lives to lose before you get a game over, colliding with an enemy would simply send you back to the most recent red cross that Harry stepped on. 
More sequels have followed in the years since, but none of them involved David Crane, and it shows, as they all lacked that attention to detail in their design that made him such a successful developer. But they don't really matter, because when we think of Pitfall today, we only really mean these first two entries in the series, these games that were made by David Crane for the 2600 console. Wrapped as he was in a battle of wits against a system that was as fundamentally constrained as it was remarkably versatile. To look back at Pitfall now, without the context of its creation, is to see a horribly repetitive, shallow game with a few nifty design ideas that almost seem hamstrung by technology. But as we've just explored, the fact that it even existed at all was a testament to the genius of David Crane and the other Atari 2600 programmers who devised techniques to achieve the impossible with a programmable Pong and Tank machine. And for that reason, I think Pitfall has a bit of a split legacy. On the one hand, there's the obvious legacy of its theme and mechanics, which we saw explored further in games like Rick Dangerous, Tomb Raider, Crash Bandicoot, Spelunky and Uncharted. This idea of an Indiana Jones-esque adventure and treasure hunting where you run around jumping and swinging and climbing through the wilderness to uncover ancient secrets or whatever. Where the environment poses as much a danger as the beasties you encounter along the way. But then there's also the aspirational legacy, the technical legacy. This idea that you can be limited not by what the hardware is capable of, so much as what you can figure out how to shoehorn in there. By what you can invent, with a little lateral thinking, a whole lot of creativity, and enough patience to make it work. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. If you missed the previous episode, the season opener on how a couple of guys helped trigger a revolution in game sound, I'd highly recommend going back and giving it a listen. It was my most elaborate, most carefully edited and produced story yet, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. I would love to turn the Life and Times of Video Games into my job one day, so if you enjoyed this episode or anything else I've made, I'd really appreciate it if you could share it. Just tell other people to listen or say nice things about it on social media or something else along those lines. And if you really like it, I'd be super grateful for any financial support you can send my way. I can take one-off donations or monthly ones. For one-off donations of any amount, the easiest method is just to go to paypal.me slash mossrc and follow the prompts. For monthly payments, you can either go to Patreon, where you nominate an amount and get various rewards depending on what payment tier that falls within, like ad-free, high bitrate episodes, bonus audio content, written behind-the-scenes updates and research notes, the chance to vote on new episodes, and more. Or you can subscribe to my new premium feed on Breaker, where for three US dollars a month, you quite simply get ad-free, high bitrate versions of everything on the main feed, plus all that bonus audio that gets posted to Patreon not any other written stuff. The links for these are in the show notes, but I'll read out the shortcut versions for you now. So for PayPal, it's paypal.me slash mossrc. For Patreon, lifeandtimes.games slash patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
And for the premium feed on Breaker, lifeandtimes.games/breaker. That's B-R-E-A-K-E-R. I want to say a huge, massive thanks to everyone who's been supporting me through the show's life so far, especially my producer-level backers on Patreon, Wade Trugaskis, Seth Robinson, Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, and Eric Socker, my new one. And speaking of new backers, thank you very much to the people who've signed up as new patrons since the last episode. I hope that you stick around, and I hope I can make it worthwhile for you. Just holler at me if you ever have ideas, suggestions, advice, comments, or whatever else. And I'll see what I can do. So as always, you can find past episodes, where to listen links, donation info, and all that good stuff at the website, lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. See ya. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Vaughn Hyde. I'm the host of IndiePod, an indie games podcast. With the help of my illustrious co-host, the biggest of average Josh Boys, we bring you all the indie games news you need to know, as well as shouting out some amazing indie games over on crowdfunding sites and occasionally derailing to a conversation about big anime chesticles. We are so happy to be part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network alongside so many other awesome gaming podcasts. So if you love indie games, make sure to listen in each and every Friday.